This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration buys many things, and since 1972, it has commissioned some 500 works of art to hang in or otherwise adorn federal buildings. Joining me with the latest in the Art in Architecture program as it marks 50 years, the director of GSA's Center for Fine Arts, Jennifer Gibson. Ms. Gibson, good to have you on. Good morning. Nice to be here. At cocktail parties, when you say fine arts and general services administration in the same breath, do you get a lot of eyebrows? Absolutely. And generally what I I go on to explain, it's a little like being a director of a museum that's all over the country with one work in every city. And the federal government has this amazing collection and we continue to add to it. And that always causes people to pause. They're amazed that their government does this and then tend to get very excited about it. And this program dates back to an executive order from the Nixon administration, which built on, I think, the general architecture program that was established in the Kennedy administration. So there's a long, proud history here. But tell us about how the program works. Basically, anytime the federal government, GSA, is building a new building or doing a major modernization of a building that we already have, we have by regulation one half of 1% of the estimated construction cost to commission a site-specific artwork. So over the course, as you had just mentioned, over the course of the past 50 years, we've commissioned over 500 works. And we're continuing on with the many new projects that are coming up. When you mention site-specific, that means it could be a hanging painting, but more often than not, it's maybe, what, sculpture or murals? It can be a painting. Basically, what we're doing is commissioning civic art. This is art intended to be seen by the public and be in publicly accessible parts of the building. So it's outside, it's on a plaza, it's in a lobby, it's someplace where people the general public can see it. And the work is tends to be large scale. So we're not looking at small easel size paintings or portable sculpture. We're doing large scale permanently installed works. So yes, we have paintings, but the paintings may be 90 feet long and 10 feet tall. Interesting. And tell us the process for, first of all, commissioning which artist. Is there a competition and how the decisions get made on what you'll end up with? Because I imagine that's fraught with a lot of opinions. Yes. Art tends to elicit strong opinions. It is the art and architecture program is a federal procurement process. So we have to obey all of the federal regulations on acquiring services and products. And for each commission, we set up a specific panel. We don't have a single body of people who are making these selections. That panel includes seven members. It's the primary federal tenant. So if we're working on a courthouse, one of the federal judges sits on the panel. If we're working on a border station, somebody from Customs and Border Protection is a participant. We also have the lead designer. This is the person who knows how the building's going to work, the materials, the spaces, and can provide guidance, and who often has worked with artists in the past. We involve the community both with through the federal tenant and then with a community representative. This is somebody who really knows a community and can provide insights into what's important to that community. We have an arts professional also from the area. So this is a person we're hoping is really tuned in to what artists are around and can perhaps participate in this project. And then we have a national arts representative and GSA 
this panel meets several times. Once to just learn about the project, to learn about what the agency that's going to be occupying it does. Most people don't know how a federal courthouse works or what's really going on at a border station. And those kinds of things get discussed. The agency representative also explains what's important to that agency. The community member talks about the community. So you learn a lot about the site. That panel's then responsible for thinking about ways art might be incorporated into the project, and they can recommend artists to be reviewed. We will do a solicitation, just as all government solicitations. So an artist who might be interested in being considered can submit materials. And we have something called the National Artist Registry, which is available online. Are any artist who's a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident can participate in the National Artist Registry. Once they submit their materials, which is basically images of past work and a resume, they can be considered for any project anywhere in the country. All of those potential candidates are reviewed by criteria that the panel has set, and they meet again to look and sort of, they rate potential artists. Then we do procurement. We go through everything that's been stated by the panel, what's important to them. We then go through all these various evaluation factors to make a recommendation. The artist who's selected is under contract, and then they start to work on a design that's shared with the panel. We seek their comments and approval before proceeding. We're speaking with Jennifer Gibson. She's director for the Center for Fine Arts at the GSA. So in many ways, commissioning the art is similar to commissioning the building. You need functionality, but you also need design and tastefulness and something that the community can accept. Absolutely. It's important. We want the community to embrace the art, both the community outside the building and the tenants of the building. So it's it's not a process where anybody's coming and saying, this is the art that's good for you, or this is what we need. It's really a collaborative process. And the artist becomes part of the design team. They're totally integrated, both as far as their schedule and how their, their work is incorporated into the building. Because as I mentioned earlier, these are permanently installed buildings. Sure. And they tend to be complex installations that require the support also of the building design. And just a quick question on the regionality. You mentioned that the national, the artist registry is national. But how much does the region come into play? Say, for example, would you show a and I'm just making this up, a snowy pine forest in New Mexico and a sunny orange adobe scene in Maine? Generally not, but it could happen. That would be part of the discussion. There actually is a work in Alaska of diving pelicans that everybody is convinced was actually intended for Florida. And it wasn't. It was an Alaska artist who designed that work. It pops up in the press every once in a while in Alaska. Sure. <laughs> but it's in that back and forth, the work that's created tends to be appropriate for the function of the building and for the location, the geographic and regional character of the site. You know, increasingly art is becoming politicized and there's political content and sometimes people derive political content from old art because the sensibilities now are different from 50, 75 years ago and so on. Does that ever come up and do you change things out? Someone, a group of people decide, you know, this doesn't work anymore. It's a challenge and it has certainly in the past two, three years become ever more of a challenge 
It's rare that we remove an artwork. We have very specific criteria for when we do remove artworks. And generally, if it's the artworks endangered, if it endangers somebody else, we could have a situation where something has become fragile and could potentially, we'll say, fall fall off its pedestal. The content, we can't control how people perceive things. And there can be something that was certainly intended as benign that now is not seen that way. We try to address that through interpretation and just working to explain what this art is because, you know, I recognize you're never going to make absolutely everybody happy, but our intents are always to be open to the general public and to address their concerns. A question about the art itself, say it is a sculpture or a large mural. This doesn't instantly happen overnight. And in the case of a mural, you're, I'm guessing it's created on site. Once the artist is agreed to and the subject matter or the general idea of the art is agreed to by the commission, the artist is free to go and finish that? I mean, you can't say, wait a minute, can you make that one a little bit bluer, that part? And can you can you sort of lighten up that section, raise that statue's hand a little higher? I mean, that doesn't happen. <laughs> no, it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> Basically, the artist, as soon as they're under contract, the artist makes a visit to the site. So they get to talk to the people who were participating. They get to talk to community members and try to learn more. We, we share the information that the panel has discussed so that artists are aware of what the goals of the project are. They then go off and do a preliminary proposal. They are basically showing us what they want the artwork to be. And it's, it's not fully developed, but at that point we'd know, okay, it's going to be a painting. They're envisioning it being X number of feet. This is the content. These are the materials. We will bring in conservators or other specialists along the way to provide additional support so that we know the artist is working with materials and methods that will allow the work to have a long life. Because once we commission it, we retain it and have to take care of it. They then do a, the artist does a final proposal. That pretty much looks the way the art, final artwork will look. Because we always have to keep in mind, the artist has a budget. These are fixed price contracts coming into it. They know they're doing everything from their travel, all their meetings, any specialists they have to hire fabrication, installation, and final photographs and documentation. So they have a set budget and they are tied to the schedule of the building. Sure. And we try to have the artwork installed. And most artists don't paint on site anymore. During the 1930s, there are a number of murals that the government commissioned that were frescoes. Those had to be done on site. But for the most part, the artist is creating the work and bringing it. They might have to do assembly, but they're not for the most part, not doing the actual painting on site, though just in the past month, we have an artist, Monique van Genderen, who's done a mural for the Sylvia Rambo Courthouse in Harrisburg, which is still under construction. Much of the work was done over the course of several weeks while she was there, painting with crews. But that's sort of the sure. exception. By the way, is that the 90-foot mural? Yes. <laughs> well, it's actually longer, I think. Somehow, I think it's 200 feet. It's it's a very long mural, which is currently protected because the construction is still going on. And so we don't want damage to occur to the artwork. But for an artist, this is easily start to finish five to seven years. Wow. Well, I guess that's how long it took to do the Sistine Chapel. So why should modern day be any less? And 
Also, I wanted to ask you about the infrastructure bill. Gave a big expansion to the art in architecture program because of projects that are being launched under that? Yes. You know, as I had mentioned, whenever they're, we're doing construction, we have half a percent of estimated construction costs, which is a penny of every $2, if you think about it that way. So with the all of the land ports of entry, there are 26 projects that will be going on. Some of them are starting already. So we've already had a panel for two of those projects. Um, this is going to provide a wonderful opportunity for artists who might often not participate in our programs. We encourage artists to join the registry. Many people don't know about it or they think, oh, I'll never get a commission. In an average year, we do maybe five new commissions. You know, we initiate them because we're based on congressional authorization for construction. But with this funding, with all of the new land ports of entry, we're suddenly going to have many more projects. And many of them are projects that have lower value in that the budget for the art is 80000 a 100000 which sounds like a lot of money, except as I had mentioned, this is the everything that an artist is going to have to do to deliver that artwork. And if you're delivering the artwork to a northern remote border station, there's a lot of effort and cost involved in that. We have to be able to justify that the artist's capacity to do the project and to show that they've had similar experience. With these lower budgets, it allows us to reach artists who might normally not receive a commission because they don't have that kind of experience. So we're excited and we have a memorandum of understanding with the National Endowment for the Arts and have been promoting this art and architecture, celebrating the 50th anniversary and uh, doing outreach to communities so that we can reach underserved communities and artists who would not normally be, never stop and think, ah, maybe I'll have an art commission in a federal building and it'll be there for the next hundred years. I guess if you're going to have a sculpture delivered to a distant northern post, you're going to get aluminum probably and not bronze. Jennifer Gibson. Jennifer Gibson is director of the Center for Fine Arts at the General Services Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And let's hope there's another great 50 years of art. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.